So Psalm 103. So um, <clears throat> how many of you guys have ever experienced like uh, spiritual drought, spiritual dryness, struggling, like your heart's just indifferent, you're just kind of blah, you know, spiritually like meh, you know, right? If I, have had an, if I had an emoji to go with like spiritually how you feel, it'd be like one with like the smirk sideways like meh, you know? How many of you guys feel that way ever spiritually? You guys ever experienced spiritual dryness? Yeah, be encouraged, everybody, right? You're not alone. Does everybody have the joy of the Lord always and sound like Psalm 98, you know, like heights of praise and we're dancing? No. You know, that's why discouraging psalms are encouraging to us, right? Because life's full of ups and downs and here's and, and there's. And so um, this weekend, just having freedom to really preach on whatever I wanted, I wanted to preach Psalm 103. Um, I preached a couple of sermons on this, but really why I wanted to, to point us to Psalm 103 is when I'm spiritually dry, when I'm really discouraged, Psalm 103 is the spot where I turn. So I turn there a lot, okay? That's what I'm, that's what I'm telling you. I go here often to remind myself, right, of who God is and what his grace is and all those beautiful truths that we've already sung today. Um, so I think I, I, like I'm here more as like... Um, more devotional, you know, more just kind of like less like, you know, technical, expositional, though we're going to be getting into the scriptures, but I think more just kind of sharing from a heart of I've, I've drunk from these truths, I've drunk from this passage plenty of times being discouraged and spiritually dry and just feeling like I need to hear from the Lord and be encouraged by him um, again. So that's kind of where I'm coming from on this one, all right? So Psalm 103, let's dig in right away. Psalm of David. See where it says, one of, one, see the top where it's in bold, bless the Lord, O my soul. We wrote that in. But see where it says, of David, that's scripture, right? So they would write that. They would oftentimes write these introductions in their psalms. So David writes, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. One of the first things that you see David doing here is really he's kind of talking to himself, right? He's talking to his own soul, right? So this is why I said, like, how many of you guys have ever experienced dryness of soul, discouragement of soul? <clears throat> That's pretty common for us. A lot of us have found ourselves there. I think David finds himself here, right? David finds himself in a point of discouragement, dryness of soul, and he's talking to himself, Right? How many of you guys talk to yourselves? I do. Anybody want to confess that? Right? I talk to myself spiritually. I talk to my heart. You know, like when I'm talking about like my heart and spiritual things, when it comes to God and my relationship with him. David talks to himself here. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. All right, let's talk about that, this idea of the soul. Why is he talking to his soul? Because that's where God wants us to know him, from the soul. And it's almost as if God kind of rejects any version of religion or spirituality that's just actions, just deeds, just like rhythms and just kind of like, you know, activity, devoid of heart, devoid of soul. In fact, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? You praise me with your lips. You come in here on Sundays and sing songs. Or you have scripture memorized, rolled out because you learned it from third grade and yet your heart is what? Far from me, right? 
So we don't want just like spiritual activity, religious activity, church attendance, right? Going to things, rhythms, like it's on the calendar and I just do it, right? It's not what we're talking about. David here rightly talks to himself in the appropriate place, the heart, right? The heart. What does Proverbs 4.23 say about the heart, right? Above all, right? Guard your heart for from it flows, right? All of life. For from it is the wellspring of life. Everything that we are, everything that we do, all of our intentions, right? Everything that's, everything that, everything that's true about us and authentic about us flows from the heart. Now, what do we know about our hearts? There's a lot of conflict going on in our hearts, isn't it? I remember my good friend, uh, Joey Mayfield. Some of you guys know him. He goes, either the Holy Spirit's real or I'm schizophrenic. <laughs> right? And I don't mean to make light of anyone who might be struggling with that, literally, or have a relative, right? But sometimes you feel like, man, like that Romans 7's coming true. That which I don't want to do, I do. That which I do, I don't want to do, right? We have a mixture of, like, brokenness, yet, like, authentic, like, like heart wrought from God. And so in one moment, we want to love the things God loves and hate the things he hates. Then in another moment, we're hating the things he loves and loving the things that he hates, we're broken. So when we sang that song, Wrecked and Ruined by the Fall, I resonate with that. Right? That's, that, I experience that daily. And that's true of us. Right? We're made new, but not completely new. And so David talks to himself in the place where he ought to talk to himself, his soul, his heart. I don't know how many different times I've been spiritually dry, and I think I need to go do something. Right? I think I need to go do something. I think I need to, like, man, I need to go over here and do this, or I need to go over here and do that, or what's wrong with me? What do I need to do? Right? We're going to see here in a little bit, David doesn't go there. He doesn't go to himself and what he needs to do. He goes to the Lord and his truth and his grace. But bless the Lord, O my soul. Sometimes when you're spiritually dry, you got to talk to yourself. you got to preach truth to yourself. You have to remind your heart right, as to who God is. I'm going to show you how David does this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, but all that is within me. And so Christianity or, or our relationship with God is, is, one of, is one of a relationship from the heart, not just actions, not just deeds, not just religious activity. <clears throat> Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. I want praise and joy. I want to, I want to find joy and affection for you in my heart. Not just see that my activities line up with what I'm supposed to be doing. It's the heart. You know, it's interesting in Galatians 6, Paul deals with some folks who are saying that after Christ has come and we have this beautiful good news of God's grace, right? Extended to all people, Jews, Gentiles, sinners, historically religious people. Everybody's being welcomed and accepted by God now on the basis of faith in Jesus. And there were some Jewish folks that really struggled with this. And the message of grace was going out, but they would come and say, no, 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 it's Jesus, plus you have to adhere to the law of Moses. And they would heap these rules and laws and religion on this gospel of grace. And they were saying, well, you need to keep all the laws of Moses. You need to be circumcised, right? You need to keep the law. And Paul writes back in Galatians, he just has contention with these false teachers and reminds them of the purity of the truth of God's grace, Read Galatians sometimes if you haven't. It's awesome. If you ever want to read a really mad apostle, okay, Galatians is your, is your book. 
I'm like, you can get mad and be a spiritual leader? Cool, I like this, all right. Yeah, we, there are things to get mad at, right? Especially when people are tampering with the gospel and deluding God's grace and heaping law and rules as if God were to accept us on the basis of our merits and demerits. So anyways, so the whole issue is circumcision. So here's these uncircumcised, irreligious Gentiles. Okay, yeah, believe in Jesus, cool, but also be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And Paul says, real simply, Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, right? But a new creation. What's the only thing that matters, Paul says? It's not commandment keeping or commandment breaking. It's not religion or irreligion. But what? A new creation. A heart made alive by the Holy Spirit. So it's not, it's not hey, here's these laws. Keep them. And for those who are breaking commandments, start keeping commandments. It's no, you're dead in your sin, and by God's grace, he needs to make you alive by his Holy Spirit and give you a new heart so that with that new heart, you can bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. So neither circumcision, religion, nor uncircumcision, irreligion, means nothing. There's only one way to know God, by faith in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through faith. And all that flows from that, right? So when he's saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, right? We're talking about knowing God and relating to him and loving him from the heart. So David rightly really kind of like contends with his own heart. I remember I had a time of, of struggle, right? Uh, 2010, or 2012, struggling a little bit, really spiritually depressed. I picked up uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, and in it, he pointed to Psalm 103 and other various places. He goes, look at the, the, look at the gospel writers, look at the psalmists. What they do is they, they take themselves in hand and they lead themselves to the truth. They preach to themselves. Sometimes we need to preach to ourselves, remind ourselves of the truth. And this is exactly what David does here. Look what he says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? Forget not all his benefits. He's talking to himself. Don't forget the benefits of faith in God. And he goes to list these benefits. Look at these things, right? Who forgives what? All your iniquity. Some, a majority of, or what? All. Forgives all your iniquity. What is the great joy and fruit of the gospel? Is that all my sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. He forgives all your iniquity. Done, away with. I always tell people, we bring nothing to the table except sin and death. And we know one person who's come and swallowed them both up in his life, death, and resurrection. And as we just sang, now all I know is grace. <laughs> it's awesome. Forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases. What a hope, what a joy. Any of you guys struggling physically, disease, right? We might not experience the fullness of this in this life, though some do. God does miracles still, right? But not for everybody, not across the board, right? But we have the hope of what one day? Renewed bodies, glorified bodies. That's our hope, right? Our future, this thing that we're looking forward to to. He heals all your diseases. He heals our spiritual diseases as well. 
He redeems your life from the pit. So we see forgiveness of sins. We even see how this, the benefits of this God come to us physically. Some of us experience or don't experience that in this life, but our hope is one day we will when Christ comes back. He redeems your life from the pit. Redemption. What is that picture of redemption? It's rich, rich picture. Right? Think of, um, think of the sins, think of a slave market. Think of you in a bad, bad debt situation you can't get yourself out of, right? How many of you guys have ever experienced like real hardcore financial pain? Tough spot, right? Man, it's hard to get out. I need help from somebody else, right? Have you guys ever experienced a very tough relational situation? I can't fix it on my own. This idea of redemption has this idea of, of the, the system at that time, right? Slaves, slave markets. A slave had no hope to purchase himself out. And it's a real direct correlation to where we're at spiritually. That before Christ, we were slaves to sin. When sin said jump, we said how high. And we were dominated by just our hearts and our desires. Whatever we thunk, whatever we, we had, had the thought to do, whatever we had the desire to do, we just did. Right? And we have accrued, each of us personally, an amount of moral debt that is ridiculous. There's no hope for us to purchase our way out of this sin slave market. We have accrued so, so great a debt that there's no hope for us to buy ourselves out. This is why it's so beautiful in Colossians 1.13 that we just read this passage. In Colossians 1.13 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the son he loves or the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came for slaves. He came for those who were broken, those who were in debt, moral debt. And he purchased us out of such a hole, such a debt that we could never buy ourselves out of. And if you want to know how deep your debt is, you have to look at the price that was paid to get you out of debt. What gets you out of debt? What gets you and I out of debt, friends? Nothing but the innocent, spotless, without blemish blood of a perfect eternal son. That's how much it costs to purchase you out. And there was no chance for any of us to pay that price. And so we needed help from the outside. We've been redeemed, right? Redemption. Forget not all his benefits. Don't forget. So if your heart is dry, what? We remember. We fight against with spiritual amnesia, right? We forget. We forget his grace is this ridiculous. We forget what he's done for us. And then we come in and we sing songs of his gospel and our hearts burn and are reminded yet again, oh yeah, that's right, he loves me. He's redeemed me, he's forgiven me, he heals me. He redeemed your life from a pit, a pit of moral debt. Ultimately, he's transferred us. Look at this, 
He crowns you with steadfast love. Think of a crown, right? A crown back in this day would what? Significant, signify, signify, right? What? Importance, right? Identity. Someone walked around with a crown. That's a, that's somebody, right? You walk around with a crown. That's identity. That's something I can be a proud of. That's I can, I can lift my head up high because I have this crown, usually pointing to some sort of social status, right? Royal status. I par, I belong to some family. It represents something bigger, this crown, right? There might be an army behind it, money behind it, whatever. Identity, social status, right? Check it out. A crown. What does God crown us with? Steadfast love. You know, that word there is, is hesed. It's the word for God's covenant-keeping love, the promise he made way back to Abraham, the promise that gets fulfilled in Christ. Unbreaking, unending, always and forever love. Never stopping, never giving up, always, forever love. Unending, God's covenant love. Crowns you with it. Puts it on your head. This is my identity. I'm a child of the king. I'm crowned with steadfast love. And what else? Mercy, I think it says. Steadfast love and mercy. What is the thing that has us lift our heads? Though broken and discouraged like David, what is the thing that lifts our heads up and causes us to be not ultimately ruined, ultimately depressed because of what we've done or what we're experiencing, this dryness, right? It's that he loves us, eternally so, fully, permanently, eternally, legally. He made a covenant and an oath. He swore it by himself. When God made his covenant with Abraham, do you remember what happened? He knocked Abraham out, put him to sleep, cut the animals in half, passed through them on his own, made a covenant, swore by his own nature and his own word. That covenant's fulfilled to us in Christ. And it's not a two-way street. It's a one-way street. It's a promise that God made to forever love us, to never leave us and never forsake us. And he places it on your head like a crown. You're crowned with steadfast love and mercy. So where's your confidence, Christian? Where's the thing that causes you to straighten your knees, lift your head, Right? It causes you to walk up and be confident in life. Your own religious deeds and merits? Well, maybe. But when you're up, you're up. And when you're down, you're down. And you just keep doing this, right? Up and down, up and down. But if, man, my crown is steadfast love and mercy, if that's my identity, if that's the thing that gives me significance, if this is the thing that I own, in this life, that's eternal, that's steadfast, that doesn't change. That's based upon who he is and nothing in us. Why do I know it's nothing in us? Well, let's keep going. Crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good. You know what? I really resonated with that song when it talked about, you know, this, this sin promised me joy, it promised me life, and what did it give me in return? Death. That's always the allure of sin. Joy, happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment. 
And then we chase after these things, whatever they might be, monetary, relational, sexual, right? I don't know, material, whatever it is your thing that you wrestle with. It promises what? Life, joy, peace. What does it deliver? Death, always. And we buy in time and time again. It says here that he satisfies us with good. Satisfies us with good. Lo and behold, everything that we've always wanted from these things that we're giving our lives to has been there in God all along. And David's reminding himself of that, right? In our sin, what are we doing? We're believing a lie. We're believing some other God, that some other God's going to satisfy us with good, give us joy, and we buy a hook, line, sinker all the time, not knowing that the entire time, right there, this God, who we don't need to earn his love at all, has offered to us freely good satisfaction, joy. I was talking with Andy a little bit earlier, Andy Otis, one of our small group leaders, he said he was reading some devotion, just talking about being satisfied in our God. It's hard sometimes. It's hard sometimes to know that, experience that, feel that. We need to do some things like what David's doing here. Run back to him, sit at his table, remind ourselves of the truth. Your God, you're good. And you can satisfy our wandering hearts because you're good. And I'm about to go chase after this thing that's promising me good and satisfaction. And I know it's a lie. Run to him. So that your what? Youth is renewed like the eagles. And I think about an eagle that just soars, right? Just freedom. Freedom and joy and youth just soars. It's free, right? That's what God wants us to live in. He wants us to live in freedom. He wants us to live in satisfaction. He wants us to live in joy. He wants us to live in good. That's what our God wants for us. And sometimes we think his laws and his rules are oppressive, right? But in it, he shows us the way and what it means to know him and live in the goodness and satisfaction of this God. And oftentimes we stray. And how good is it to know that we're forgiven? And how good is it to be welcomed back to this God who offers us good? So forget not all his benefits. What is the key to getting out of a funk? What's the key to being encouraged again, right? Forget not all his benefits. Remember. And is this not what Jesus built into the rhythm of his people? As often as you remember, take bread and cup in hand and do what? Remember who? Me, right? What if I told you that the Christian life was a life of remembering and believing resting and trusting. Some of us have thought that Christianity is about, here's a bunch of rules and things I do and don't do. Well, maybe. But before we get to that, we get to remembering. Before we get to that, we get to Jesus. Before we get to God, we get to God. Forget not all his benefits. Be encouraged by that. So sometimes you got to drag yourself to the truth. Sometimes you got to preach to yourself. I don't know if any of you ever thought of yourselves as preachers, but you're going to have to preach a sermon to yourself at some point, right? Remind yourself of the truth. Remind yourself of God's goodness. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. 
Here's how David's readers would have been hearing this. They would have been hearing that like nationally, politically, earthly, right? And God did at times intervene in Israel's history, right? Brought them out of slavery, right? Freed them from people, caused them to win wars. How do we, how do we view verse 6 with a gospel lens, knowing that Jesus came? What kind of enemies did he come and wipe out? Well, he got defeated by Rome, who they thought he was going to overcome, and he died. So his intervention in the world looked a lot like non-intervention, but there was a greater enemy. There was a greater oppression that he was saving us from. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. In fact, he's justified us because he's given us his righteousness, and we were oppressed by the guilt and the shame and the consequences of sin, and he has come and freed us from sin, Satan. Look at seven. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Made known. He's revealed. How is David even able to forget not all his benefits? How is he able to even remind himself of who God is? Because God's revealed himself. He's acted in history. Meaning this, God has not hoarded who he is from us, but has freely shared himself with us in Christ. He didn't dangle the carrot in front of us or make us even work for it. He didn't hoard himself and all of his benefits. What did he do? He freely gave them to us. He's made known his ways. He's revealed himself. In fact, you have in your hand or in your app the revelation of God. He's spoken. I heard a guy say one time, you know, it's not even really the question of does God exist or not. Is if he exists, does he speak? Does he reveal? Does he make known? Because there could be a God, and if he doesn't speak to him, it would be there, to us it would be as if there was no God. So how precious is it that he's made known? He's spoken, right? He's let us know. How are we able even to know he's revealed? He's made known his ways to us, his acts to the people of Israel, his acts to the church. He's made known to us this. All the stories, right? Building up in redemption history, the coming of Christ. Praise God for that. We're not in the dark. Now we have verse 8. Reminds us of Exodus 34, one of the very earliest revelations we get of God. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You guys have heard this before. I just want to just sit on this for a second. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Answer this question. What is God's general heart posture towards you right now? Even in your depression, even in your spiritual indifference, maybe even in your sin right now, what is God's general heart posture towards you? It's one of mercy. It's one of grace. Meaning this, his arms are always open. He loves when his children return to him. He stands like the father with the prodigal son by the window waiting for us to return. His heart posture toward us is one of mercy and of grace. And sometimes we've missed that, don't we? Sometimes we think with our good deeds and our bad deeds that God's eyebrows go up and down, right? We think by our deeds and our actions that we're swaying the posture and the heart of God toward us. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Man, I wish I was like this with my kids, right? 
I wish I was the kind of dad, like God is a dad to us, slow to anger, slow to it. He abounds in steadfast love, meaning this, he has plenty of it. He abounds in it. There's a ton of it, meaning this, it never wears out. How many of you struggle with maybe a besetting sin, a thing that you constantly come to God with, and you can't even drag yourself there because you think, surely he doesn't have grace for me yet again. And yet what do we find? That he abounds in steadfast love. Abounds. Plenty, massive amounts, doesn't run out. I heard a pastor say one time, um, think about when God's love came to you, right? While we were what? Still sinners. Christ died for us, right? Meaning this, his love came to you when you were at your worst. How can we ever think that we would ever wear his love out for us? And yet we buy into that lie, right? Circle eight, man, just circle it, love it, trust it, believe it. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. There's another word you don't use with your friends and coworkers tomorrow. Talk about God chiding. What? Chide means scold or rebuke. He will not always scold. He will not always rebuke. He will not always keep. He will not keep his anger forever, right? No, he's not going to keep his anger. He's not going to try. Why? Because his scolding and rebuking and his anger were satisfied in who? Christ. Look at this, 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins. This is not the basis of our relationship with God our deeds and actions. That if we do something that he responds in kind, or if we do something good, he responds in kind. If we do something bad, he responds in kind. Some of you think God works that way. Let me just lead you in good news right now. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Meaning this, the foundation and the basis of our relationship, our covenant relationship with God, is based on the merits of Jesus, not our merits or demerits. He treats us according to his son. His posture toward us is one who is immersed and soaked by faith in the works and benefits of his son. In fact, he sees us as if we are his son. Because all that his son has done has been given to us and granted to us by faith. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Some of us think, like, some of us treat God like karma, right? Some of us treat God like, if I do this, then God responds in kind. If I do this, then God responds in kind. Nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. Can I get an amen? He does not repay us according to our iniquities. I'm telling you, I go here dry, and I need to hear this. I need to hear that he doesn't repay me according to my iniquities. And his general heart posture towards me is one of mercy and grace. I need to remind myself of that. For high as the heavens are above the earth, right? So great is his steadfast love 
towards those who fear him. As if we needed to be reminded again when David said that he abounds in steadfast love, he now gives us another imagery. As far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his steadfast love is for us. David says he abounds in it. Now he says, listen, okay, so here's earth and here's heaven. And as far as it is from heaven to earth, that's how great his steadfast covenant-keeping, unbreaking, unending, always and forever, one-way love is for us. So great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. We looked at this word fear in 1 Peter, right? What does it mean? It means it's a posture of worship. It's a healthy fear Right? We don't fear governments. We don't fear fear itself. We fear God because he's the only one that we need to have to do with. It's his word that's final. He's more powerful. Some of us struggle with fear of man, fear of this and fear of that. The only thing we need to fear really is God because he's eternal and he's most powerful. So we, we turn towards him. We fear him because he's greater not fear like, I can't come to you. It's not that kind of fear, right? It's different. It's a fear that drives us to him because he's greater. And this is what I love. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. There's this old Egyptian um, hymn, right? It talks about God as a judge. And it says that those who, um, those who were unrighteous, they get separated to the east. And those who are righteous get separated to the west. Unrighteous, east. Righteous, west. And it's all based upon your deeds and your actions, your merits and your demerits, and your iniquities. In light of that cultural lie, what does David write? Righteous go here, unrighteous go there. No, he says this. By faith in this God, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove us from our transgressions. Meaning he removes us from an association with our transgressions. Meaning this, he doesn't treat us according to our deeds and our transgressions. That they're real. We have sinned. And those really happened. He's not sweeping them under the rug. What he's choosing as he looks forward to Christ He's choosing to not treat you according to them, but his grace. And he removes you as far as the east is from the west from an association with your sin. And he chooses not to treat you according to it. So instead of bad guys that way, good guys that way, right? Which is a general understanding of a God who loves on the basis of deeds. It's this. We're all jacked up. God comes and loves us in Christ, saves us, gives us his righteousness, makes us holy, puts us as far as we can this way from our sins, as far as the east is from the west, so far of a gap. We don't need to fear it. No association there. Just look at this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He buries our sins deep in an ocean out east. Better yet, he buries our sins at the cross. 
you know, we get this phrase, right? What goes around comes around. How many of you guys heard that? Goes around comes around. That's karma. You know what the gospel says to that? What goes around stops at the foot of the cross. What goes around stops dead at a cross. As a father shows compassion to his children, as a father shows compassion, our God is compassionate to us. He's sympathetic to us. In fact, I can't think of more of a gracious verse in the Bible than verse 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who worship him. Look at 14. I love this. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we're dust. He knows we're flesh and blood. He knows we're skin and bones. He remembers that we came from the dust. He knows we're flawed. He knows we're frail. And he knows we're weak. And does he reject us because of that? Does he look down with a heart of contempt for us for that? Right? Get it together, man. What's your problem? For he knows our frame and remembers that we're dust. And he looks down at us struggling through life. And he looks down at us struggling to love God and do what the Spirit is putting in our hearts, that thing that's there. We want to love him. We want to do which is right. Sometimes we just end up not doing that. And sometimes we end up failing, struggling, And he doesn't have a heart posture like, get it together. What's your problem? He has compassion. He has a heart of sympathy, which is why I love Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. How can God show this kind of compassion to us? Because God knows what it's like to be a man because God became a man. And instead of, instead of, instead of here, this is, wasn't Christmas. Like, you guys are idiots. Let me show you how to do this, right? Get it together. Look, I did it. I know he came to rescue us. And in the midst of his temptation and knowing what it's like to be flesh because he condescended, he came down and took on flesh with all of its temptations, didn't sin once, but it gave God a heart of sympathy and compassion to us. God is sympathetic to your struggles. He knows. And his heart posture towards you is one of mercy and grace and compassion. And you know what that ought to do? It ought to lift your heart. It ought to make you not wallow in your self-pity and in your shame and your guilt, but give you confidence to run back to him. That's what it should do. This is what forget not all his benefits does. It lifts us up out of this state and gives us courage to know that, yes, even in my sin, I'm loved. Even in my sin, I'm welcomed. God has a heart of sympathy for me. He forgives me, loves me, and his steadfast love abounds, is great, and is higher than the earth is from heaven.
as a father shows compassion to his children, like a dad to his kids. Now, I'm not a dad, I'm not a dad like God fully, but I know what it's like to have compassion on my kids. I know what it's like to just look at my kids with unadulterated love and just have compassion and love and sympathy for them. I know what that's like. I wish I had it all the time, and I don't, but I know what that's like. And to think that God's heart in those pure moments that God gives me, right, to think that God's heart is like that towards me all the time. That's a grace for sure. For he knows our frame. He remembers where we came from. As for man, his days are like grass, right? We're dust. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it's gone. Its place knows it no more. Again, the steadfast love of the Lord. David is pounding this point. We are like grass. We're like a flower in the field. We're like summer in northwest Indiana, right? Comes and it goes. It's here and it's gone. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Here's the whole point of these last few verses. We are weak and frail. We come and go. We're up and down. We're here, there, and we're everywhere. God has established his throne in heavens. He's eternally so. And the steadfast love is steady, eternal, and free. So what do you want to do? Do you want to wallow down here? And you're up, down, here, there, merit, demerit, sin, good days, bad days, right? Do you want to, you want to relate to God on this basis? Or do you want to just humble yourself and say, you know what? I'm weak and I'm frail and I'm broken. And to just drop this idea that you can ever get yourself together. Drop this idea that you're ever going to be good enough to where you're not going to need God's grace. And to just look up at him and to be reminded of his benefits and his heart towards you and to know that he welcomes you and accepts you because of his heart, because this is the kind of God he is, and just trust in that. And to come to find out in Psalm 103 that really the life of the Christian, the life of one who knows God is one of the heart, where we're constantly looking outside of ourselves to God and seeing his benefits, his love, his grace, what he's done, his heart posture toward us. And not like, man, I'm really struggling what do I need to do to get out of this? And David doesn't do that. He doesn't give us a list of things to do. He gives us a list of the benefits of who God is so that we can look outside of ourselves to him and rest and trust and rejoice because his love is really like this. And when we dare to reckon that true in all that we do, when we dare to reckon this true in all of life, It creates in us a unique blend of humility and confidence. You know what? Looking to ourselves and basing our relationship with God on what we do and don't do, you know what that creates? It creates the height of pride and depths of depression. 
Because when we're good, check me out. When we're failing, we're low. But when we anchor our hearts to the truth of God, you know what that does? Last thing here for you guys. It creates in our hearts a unique blend of humility. Why? Because we're flawed. We see it. We know it. There's no pride here. We're like grass. We're like the flower. Right? But what? But we're loved. Eternally so. And so we walk around with a limp. We walk around broken. We walk around just flawed. But we walk around loved. With a steadfast love. Unending, never stopping, unbreaking, always and forever love. From the God whose heart toward us is merciful, compassionate, and one of grace. So if you find yourself dry, you go to Psalm 103 and you forget not all his benefits and just rest in the fact that that is true and believe it. So we come to find out the Christian life really is a life of faith, believing yet again who God is and what he's done and his promises to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, you're good. You're so good. Your steadfast love, God, help us to rest in this. Help us to trust in it. Help us to know it. How do we struggle? We wrestle. In our hearts, those of us who have been made alive, we know this new creation. We truly do want to love you. We find ourselves just not having the resources to do it. We find ourselves just broken. We find ourselves forgetting. We find ourselves just having amnesia, going whole days and weeks just forgetting you. What is our joy? What is our hope? That next week we can do better? That next week we can, we can get it together? No, our hope is that even though we have forgotten you and have strayed, that you've not forgotten us. And your steadfast love is steady, and it's right on us. you got your sights right on us. And you're merciful and compassionate. You're slow to anger, and you're abounding in steadfast love and mercy toward us. That's our confidence. So help us to move away from religion or irreligion, thinking that it's about rule-keeping or rule-breaking, thinking that it's about us at all, but to have our eyes on you and to know you by faith and to watch the joy that really kind of gets conjured up there. And to watch us know and love and relate to you and love people in this world and love you in this world with a heart that's just kind of exploding because you really are this kind of God. So help us to love you from the soul. Help us to love you from the heart, a heart that forgets not all its benefits. And help us to have these rude resources when we're depressed, when we're in a spiritual funk, and to get out of it, not because we climbed out, but because you came down and lifted us out redeemed us, and reminded us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.